Welcome to the Homebody Podcast. My name is Mary Grace, and here we explore big questions in embodied ways. These conversations intersect the mystical, the practical, and the artful, bridging a range of topics such as astrology, creative practices, what healing can look like, and cultivating deep love and care for the more-than-human world. We not only want to live better, but live more fully, with more connection, courage, and creativity in our day-to-day lives and work. And this podcast asks, what are the ways we can do that? We hope to enliven you and inspire you towards possible regenerative futures, and we hope to encourage you so together we can become dynamic agents of beauty, fully awake, fully alive to all that life has for us. We want to be here for ourselves and for one another with more grace while making room for curiosity, sensitivity, hope, and joy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a few moments to share it with someone else. And thank you so much for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I have been looking forward to recording and making and sharing this episode with you for a long time. And today I am joined by my friend, Jess Remington, who is not only the most lovely of lovely humans, but also a rigorous researcher and practitioner devoted to next economy strategy. Recently, she has come out with a book along with her co-author and other co-creators and collaborators. And this book and the micro of that, which is this interview, offers us some useful and insightful frameworks for thinking about economies differently. And these frameworks, they don't include getting better at statistics. Uh, They're not about deciding which belief system you're in and then devoting yourself wholeheartedly to its ideology only. But this research and the practices that have arisen from it have really revealed a much more human, much more connected way that we can begin to work better together, not only with other humans, but in the creation of economic systems, communities, and the more than human world. Let's talk a little bit more about Jess before we get in. So you have some context. Jess Remington is a next economy strategist, a practitioner, and a scholar who is focused on ethics and methodologies of emerging post-capitalism. So from 2015 to 2019, Jess was a visiting scholar at Stanford University's Global Project Center, co-leading an ambitious research effort with more than 50 collaborators in cases across the U.S. And in applying this research, she's also co-led several multi-stakeholder co-creation processes amongst finance, philanthropic government, small business, and community actors focused on developing new models of economic interaction and that are grounded in emerging and next system values. So for over a decade, Justice supported nonprofit and business enterprises in transforming their internal work practice to be in alignment with their justice-oriented missions. And her applied work has been informed by 11 years of experience leading two global nonprofit organizations. As both an executive director and a managing director, she built cross-cultural staff teams with innovative work cultures that were rooted in post-capitalist frameworks. And so today, Jess's work is really focused on awakening the economic imagination of individuals and groups, cultivating their ability to step out of the current system and into a more resilient next paradigm by transforming the way they work. She also supports the documentation and translation of next economy cases and ideas into accessible media and tools for mainstream audiences. 
One of those is that she's a co-creator and executive producer of the Light Ahead podcast. Jess's collaborative grassroots research is also housed in the lab of possible futures. She offers practical resources and hosts learning conversations through the School of Possible Futures. Her early career was spent in popular education, creating curriculum, rubrics, guides, and training, and Jess is currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. So all of this research and background has led her and her collaborators who have now produced a very insightful book called Beloved Economies, which you'll hear us talk about in the book and mention in conversation. And you can find out more about the book in the links below in the show notes. I would highly recommend that you add it to your library. Adrienne Marie Brown called the book a pragmatic guide for all of us who know we are ready to move beyond our current extractive and violent economy. Before we jump in, I hope that this conversation invites you into something that is expansive and imaginative that also feels really um, practical. There's something that we can land in today in our lives as they look at, and that also something that we can use to move into more of an economy that we can all can love and be loved together, which is the invitation of the book and the research. Before we dive in, I'd love to also invite you to share this conversation with one other person so that we can practice being in dialogue with these more imaginative questions and frameworks that we can learn and build more together. And so now let's jump into this conversation with Jess Remington. So I always like to give people a bit of a break from introducing themselves in a really formal, impressive CV format. And I like to invite guests to introduce themselves to the listeners um, by asking you how you would like us to know you today and for this conversation. So would you mind ushering us into the conversation by telling us how you'd like us to know you today and for this? Sure. Um, what a beautiful way to start. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm Jess Remington. I have been committed to economic, racial, and social justice for most of my life as an organizer. I also am really passionate about the opportunities we have to really rethink our macro structures and think about shifting power through how we meet in teams and gather, um, whether that's through organizations, community groups, or small businesses. I grew up in a small business family and saw the way that uh, community and culture and team formed in and out of the structure of um, yeah, a small local business then got involved in economic justice organizing pretty young and saw that there was sometimes a differential between what we wanted our organizations and movements and groups um, to be like internally and the externally espoused mission. Um, uh, And that sometimes it was just really hard to figure out how to align those things because the best models we had about how to work and our teams and groups were handed down to us from, you know, power structures and ways of being and doing uh, that don't serve the kind of society or economy or community that most of us want to live in. Um, so I became really curious about uh, how do we step out of extractive 
systems that aren't serving us? How do we step out of capitalism? And have spent a lot of my career and my days in general in life thinking about how do we build and walk into the imaginative beauty of the kind of community or economy that um, most of us want to live in. Um, one that really fills us up and makes us feel valued, that um, makes all of us feel loved, that serves all of us um, and our, our descendants, as well as heals and repairs. Um, yeah, that reimagination space. Um, I'm also a dancer and a painter and um, have an amazing cat named Bug. Uh, <laughs> and that's me. I love that. And uh, we're kind of gathering around. I'm sure our conversation will move in and out of um, this book that has just come out that you co-authored called Beloved Economies, in which, you know, it's really a compilation of research and thinking and experience that you, your co-author together with 60 other co-learner collaborators really explore and sort of practice out loud some new possibilities for how we work. And the way that I see it described in the book is that you all are really studying people who have done this really well and implemented new practices and how they're generating forms of success that not only prioritize financial wealth, but also prioritize well-being and meaning and connection and resilience. In addition to, you know, also, you know, we have to be able to make money currently and also, you know, doing a good work and having quality in what you do. And you explore a lot of different practices for this, a lot of different case studies. It's a really beautiful book. And we're going to get into some of the different things about it today. But I would love to start with this concept of belovedness, um, even in just the beginning of the book, talking about what differentiates an economy from one that is beloved to from one, an economy that is loveless. And I love this choice of words here. And I feel like it's very intentional. Do you mind speaking a little bit to that choice of words and what that's holding for you and the collaborators? Sure. Yeah, the, the term beloved economy actually comes from one of the co-learners um, who we had the honor of doing research with and alongside um, named Dr. Virgil Wood. And Dr. Virgil Wood um, was one of, uh, um, was an economic organizer alongside Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, they, he was part of a community of folks working on kind of the, the next step of the economic structural analysis um, around what is the economy that helps us obtain and live in a beloved community? Um, and we had the honor of meeting Dr. Wood around 2018 at a shared workshop. And um, I, I was the first one to do a call with him about this research and remember sharing with him on the call some of the findings we were seeing about like, look, it's, it's incredible. We've been following this group of companies and small businesses and organizations for at that point, I think it was like four years. Um, and we're seeing that these folks who radically transformed how they worked um, are one did so in similar ways and two are coming out with 
similar outcomes that weren't the kind of things we thought to measure initially. And like, wow, how interesting is that? And and also there's like this quality of being amongst all of them that's really particular. And as we were talking about it, um, Dr. Wood said, well, it sounds like what you're describing is a beloved economy. And it was um, this kind of aha moment for us. One, you know, we had not never heard that term before. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of some of the, the the work that Dr. Wood is working to finish in his lifetime. He's in his early 90s right now. Um, so it's it's a term that hasn't been as out there in public consciousness yet. <laughs> um, but it was, it also created this like really fruitful cognitive dissonance <laughs> um, for us of like, wait, economy and beloved? Uh, c- can those two things go together? Mm-hmm. Like, let's lean in further here and <laughs> um, ask some questions there. And um, it felt so generative, uh, such a like amazing question space to move from. And um, the other thing it really connected the dots for us on was um, we had been feeling like the there's such a deficit in the conversation around economy. Um, um, so often we just think about economic change as these big macro structural changes, like with the Fed or um, only what large multinational corporations can do to influence the economy. Or if if you're an individual, you know, you can only change the economy as a consumer voting through your dollar. It's kind of like what we're, we're taught. And all, all those things are, are really important too. But it also felt to us like there was this untapped or underutilized, undertapped lever for change of changing the way all of us interacted with the economy on a, and through each other on a day-to-day basis um, in our and how we gathered in our teams and our organizations and businesses because all of those component parts make up the economy like nesting dolls. So it's sort of like fractals, so above, so below, you know, or um, so below, so above kind of thing. And um, that conversation with Dr. Wood brought all those points together. And over time, um, he bestowed the the frame and the, the terminology beloved economy on this research, um, which is why the book is, is named that and, and um, opens with a, a quote from him about what it's like to induce a beloved economy. And yeah, it was a really explicit choice for us to think about how do you take all of the aspects of the ex- for mo- for most of us the existing economies we live in that are these very top-down one-size-fits-all monocultural begatting <laughs> that's a term <laughs> no it is now <laughs> um ways of being that are you know white supremacists at their root colonial at their root um and are really just intended to extract value in order to maximize wealth hoarding possibilities in the hands of a few. Um, like, you know, there's a whole bunch of different terms for that and has lots of different manifestations. And it doesn't, that same dynamic could happen outside of just capitalism too. It happens to be happening through hyper-privatized capitalism right now in a lot of our cultures and communities around the world. And, and, um, also, there's lots of isms that could be loveless, right? So we're trying to think of like, well, you know, why is it so weird to us, the term beloved economy? Why does that create dissonance? Like, why why shouldn't we feel um, 
like an economy can support and care for us. Um, and then the fact that the norm doesn't, why are things so loveless, you know? And um, how can we draw attention to all the various answers to that question by naming the water we're swimming in as something more clear, as lovelessness, something we might want to stop choosing? Yeah, I really appreciated that you drew attention to that pretty early in the book. I think it was in the um, introduction where talking about, you know, any number of economic ideologies could perpetuate work that is harmful. Um, Not only capitalism, even though that's a lot of what we're dealing with right now. And like multiple different kinds of iterations of capitalism, but it doesn't imply just because we're saying that has problems doesn't mean we're automatically implying that something like socialism is the only other option or the only solution. Right. Um, I really appreciated that you brought that to the forefront really early on because that's something I feel myself kind of caught between a lot because I'm like, well, we've seen both of those go really badly. <laughs> and so I feel you know, we like from a historical perspective, it's like mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm. seen really great examples of how both of those can go terribly wrong. And so, you know, thinking about how we can begin to untangle these either or assumptions. And I feel like what the book is calling us to is like collaborate more, use our imagination more. I feel like, you know, you have seven practices that you bring out in the book and some of them that really help, I think, get us out of this either or thinking Using, you know, like a, like sourcing from multiple ways of knowing and really mm-hmm. pulling us more mm-hmm. towards true innovation and creativity. And that's one thing that I really love about what I've read about the book so far. Um, but before we jump into more about imagination and creativity, which we could probably talk about forever. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. How do you feel like you are, or this process or this research has really helped unpack some of this either or thinking, um, and approach some of those conversations or or these opinions that we see that can often be really widespread in our culture today and also really shallow in our culture today, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that question. Yeah, I mean, first off, just to name the the kind of pluriverse best um, multiplicity thinking um, is, you know, a, a huge part of so many traditions around the world um, and has been for so many peoples for uh, millennia and a lot of the really fantastic work, um, decolonization work by so many activists and community members and scholars, um, you know, build builds off off of that thread and helps bring that to so many of us. So we we are um, standing alongside on the shoulders of so the work of so so many, um, the whole co learning community is and speaking to this like multiplicity of, of options and um, and we were so frustrated by how little air time that gets um, particularly in a U.S. context um, and a lot of the research has kept showing again and again how much um, changing how we worked um, towards uh, sharing power in a variety of different ways um, led to imagination expanding options that were 
way beyond um, kind of the limited menu <laughs> that we're often told can exist um, if one wants to, you know, I don't know, think outside of the current economy or something. Um, and we really wanted to offer with this research um, almost like a language and conversation starter Uh to bring more and more of us around the table into that imagination of options beyond just the isms we're handed. Um, and to think about how, like, you know, it's okay. We don't have to know the whole grand economic system. It doesn't have to be called something. You don't have to make up another ism. You don't have to decide what ism you are or aren't to start changing how you work. And the, the, the grand economic system that is the the makeup of all of our individual and collective actions and decisions will will come to be in its image. We don't have to label and name things. It's a very, you know, kind of like um, naming and labeling and categorizing itself, right, has um, problematic historical origins. So we can just start together mm-hmm. um, and see where we end up. And sometimes... Um, when we, uh, well, let me say it this way, I guess, um, so much of what we saw in extractivism, um, in extractive ways of working or building economy, um, whether that's extracting wealth, labor, power, etc. Um, so much of that is upheld by this kind of premise of this one size fits all sort of top-down homogenization agenda. Um, and, and we can have that one-size-fits-all top-down homogenization agenda um, for a different system outside of capitalism too, right? It's quite easy to do that and still maybe end up in a very unimaginative place mm-hmm. um, that maybe looks different politically, but could really still be constraining our what we ended up calling our economic imagination. So I don't know what I've kind of lost myself in the middle there, just getting excited talking about imagination, but (laughs) something along those lines. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I didn't feel lost at all. And I think that's one thing that I really love about this, because I think a lot of times when people think about economics or economy, you know, we're thinking about statistics, we're thinking about graphs, we're thinking about, I mean, in a lot of ways, like kind of preconceived ways of preconceived metrics and sort of fitting ourselves into those metrics. Mm -hmm. And something that I love about that you all really centered in this book is this focus on imagination and innovation and creativity, which is really thinking outside the box. It's not finding some previous thing to like shove our new ideas into and then Mm -hmm. calling it innovation. Mm -hmm. It's actually like have a new idea or let something emerge from what you're practicing. And, um, People who listen to this podcast a lot know I'm a huge proponent of creativity and creative thinking. And (laughs) um, something that you talk about in the book is like breakout innovation, which is one of the seven practices that you call out. And that I think perhaps potentially that a lot of the things that we are, when I say our culture, I'm talking about the overculture in the United States in particular, (laughs) um, because that's just what I know the best right now is this kind of a lack of imagination that we don't tend to think a lot about how we're doing or how that could affect. We don't tend to think about that sort of middle ground between the individual and the fed, for instance, like you were (laughs) talking about, um, where, where there's actually a lot of middle ground there. Um, 
Do you mind talking a bit about the role or the importance of imagination when we start approaching things like economy, maybe particularly even around this practice of breakout innovation that you speak to in the book? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think what's first off really important to understand is that um, there's there's a really good reason why it's pretty hard, particularly in a U.S. context, to have economic imagination or imagination around the diversity of different ways we could do economy. Um, we've been trained to be pretty scared of doing that. Um, and the threat of uh, the, the threats against speaking up or dreaming in that direction have been really severe and they haven't been equitably distributed. Um, all the ways in which there are biases and you know we live in a society that structurally embeds white supremacy. Um, have also come to bear on who shoulders the burden of of speaking of what happens when folks speak out. Um, and of course, that connects to patriarchy as well. So um, there you know there have been and continue to be incredible economic resistance efforts and movements throughout the entire history of the United States um, and 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 the histories that exist on this land. Um, as the United States was trying to to take hold, um, that uh, have kept the torch of economic imagination burning, um, and against all odds, have um, allowed there to be a diversity of thought around this, um, even if uh, it's tried to be extinguished again and again. And um, so, just wanting to honor those those histories of resistance and alternatives. Um, while also naming that the ways in which those efforts um, and those individuals were uh, um, received backlash has been really severe, um, whether it was the um, backlash um, against the Black cooperative movements in the United States, um, whether it was, you know, the Red Scare um, mid 20th century and a bit earlier, um, even just the efforts by, you know, a lot of the conservative political block to create kind of a synonym between um, something not capitalist being not freedom. Um, and therefore, you know, if, if you are skeptical of, you know, a whole bunch of people hoarding wealth and taking it away from you and your families, then you must be a communist. And if you're a communist, then, well, you know, obviously you're anti-freedom. Like this is, this is not an accident. This is very, very intentional and has been in many ways, very linguistically and culturally successful in making it a, a quite a dizzyingly unimaginative environment from an economic perspective. And that goes all the way into our education system, right? So um, it's, you know, it's pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> cut out all of us some slack. It's like we're, we are made to feel on a global level in terms of monoculture that to step outside of the system. And, you know, I, I, I learned this from a dear colleague is almost equivalent to, we're made to feel like it's almost equivalent to like some sort of death, societal death, death mm -hmm. outside of society. Um, and, you know, our nervous systems really respond hypervigilantly, right, to the notion of death. So it, it can almost feel like survival to not imagine outside of the current system. Mm -hmm. And within our existing cultural context right now with economy, I mean, we're all just so friggin' tired and overworked. Um, 
And uh, there is a spectrum of privilege and access to dreaming and changing how we work that is not lost on this research or any members of the co-learning community. And we talk about that quite a bit, bit in the book in terms of latitude and what kind of latitude it takes and, and also where there can be surprising latitude. So that also, <laughs> just to kind of contextualize that for folks, like to imagine to exercise one's economic imagination is so powerful. And it's something that we've come to really believe it's like, is a practice of like with real teeth because it is an act of resistance to do so. Mm -hmm. And therefore has to be, you know, like one should, uh, I would suggest (laughs) that um, we also think about what are the uh, setups of care and other practices we need to have available in our lives and community support networks um, uh, to practice economic imagination. But it's so crucially important because because it's been so um, intentionally atrophied, we are we're operating with like, I mean, I'm making up this percentage, but like 10% of the innovation or less possible, probably way, way less. Um, because we're listening to such few of the options and voices to dream into what business could be. Even just the fact that if you ask most Americans, um, like, are you a capitalist or not? Da, da, da. A lot of people think that if you are pro-business or, you know, you like having money and... <laughs> Um, would like more money maybe than you have right now, um, or you want to run a small business that you therefore must be capitalist. Like mm-hmm. I, I personally love running a small business and I am not a capitalist. These things are not necessarily intertwined. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have post-capitalist enterprises. The fact that we're not even there really, I mean, how can you even start the next set of questions? So we need more and more people to be just figuring out the questions to ask ourselves, right? Like, I think one of the biggest practices of economic imagination we can exercise is like, I don't know, having dinner with a friend and just dreaming up some questions together that we could ask ourselves about what, how the economy could be different and therefore how our workplaces or our jobs could be different. Because even coming up with the questions can be hard, you know? So, it, you know, you need support and to recognize that there's a reason it's hard and also to just keep trying. Yeah. And, and it, I also, when I hear you say that to me, it brings back this reminder that connection is a really central component of what create like a new creation could be. If yes. something's going to be intact, that connection really needs to be a big part of that. Yes. Yes. And you know, some practices emerged from your research, um, you with the authors and those who were co-learning with you, and they're really a framework to cultivate economic imagination. So I'm just going to read mm-hmm. the seven practices really quickly. So folks, we're not going to get into each of them individually, um, but just so folks can sort of orient to some of the things that we're talking about. So one is share decision-making power. Two is prioritize relationships, which is some of what you were just speaking to. Three, reckon with history. Four, seek difference. Five, source from multiple ways of knowing. Six, trust there is time. Seven, prototype early and often. And 
A, these are all beautiful and I'm not going to get into, we don't have time to get into all of them individually, but do you mind sort of the, um, going into a little bit of the process of seeing these practices arise from the research and to, um, which ones that you're really personally, um, focusing in on right now? Oh, what a great question. Thanks. Um, well, I will I will start with the latter half of your question. Personally, I'm really leaning into lately, trusting there's time, mm-hmm. trusting there's time for all of the other practices, you know, trusting there's time to prioritize relationship, trusting there's time to source for multiple ways of knowing um, and to legitimize multiple ways of knowing um, and also to prioritize relationships. That's those are my two favorite practices this week. Mm. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was quite a journey around the, the practice uncovering. Um, and just to say, these are the seven that this research collaboration ended up uncovering. Our suspicion is that this is just the tip of an iceberg of many, many practices that help cultivate economic imagination and are oriented towards um, breakout innovation that could create beloved economies. So we really encourage folks to find um, find other practices and share them with each other. Um, but these ones we, you know, I, I can say are research backed from the past seven years of work. And um, how we came to them was we started first with communities. So first with a community of um, organizations and small businesses and medium-sized businesses that had um, all changed their ways of work in some particular in a pr- some particular ways and we're seeing something extraordinary happen um, but we didn't know <laughs> they changed their ways of work in the same ways and we you know I had kind of put out a call to see if folks wanted to come together and um, in person and talk through um, some of the initial initial findings we're seeing after about a year of researching alongside these organizations and companies. This is Joanna, Saya, and I. Um, we were the facilitators of the of the research. And when we came together in that initial gathering, um, hosted by one of the a breakout actor and one of the co-learners, Concordia Community Planning Design and Architecture firm based in New Orleans. Um, <laughs> the thing that kind of kept us going for six more years is that is that gatherings what we found together, <laughs> which was that not only um, were they were all these organizations and companies across really diverse industries from architecture to disaster recovery to um, philanthropy uh, um, to high tech. Uh, not only were they kind of instantaneously recognize something special in one another, but it was that, that, that whatever that special like sauce kind of feeling they had about each other was, it was, it was about something related to how they were working, even though they had super different terminology with it. And we spent a few days basically coming to the, like, wow, there's kind of like 15, that time we had 15, 15 practices that they're all doing to kind of get this sort of extraordinary um, pathway they've been walking. Um, And even though they have different terms for them, they can see the similarities in each other. And obviously we narrowed it over time and did more um, uh, co-creative mapping and then hired independent 
um, evaluators with with new sample size, with different sample sizes to really test this affirmation. But it was pretty incredible. So that was the beginning of, of how the practices came to be talked about amongst us all. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I also love that it was enough to sort of keep the fire burning through, you know, what I imagine was a process that had a lot more ups and downs to it after that, um, like most processes do. Um, oh, yes. Life <laughs> that unfolds over six years is, you know, always life. Unfolding. Yes, there will be <laughs> dynamics, shall we say. Um, there will be life. <laughs> exactly. Um I think one of the things that has been really sitting with me and being a real, I guess, provocation to my life lately is this, I don't want to say concept because it's not a concept, is a practice, I would say, of regenerativity. And which um, when I think of that word, I usually think of how Paul Paul Hawken describes it, which is that we are regenerativity leaves more life than it takes. And taking as sitting as with something that challenges me and is a lens through which I look at my life, not always in a satisfactory way. And when we think of that as like sort of the opposite to me anyways, from extraction, which is, you know, basically leaving less life than when we got there. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, these are things that I've been really sitting with and I can feel it slowly really changing the lens through which I see my own life, the lens through which I um, decide what is valuable to me. Um, And in the book, you know, of course, we're talking about the, you know, business as usual and a key component of that being something that is extractive. And also part of this imagination, really seeing that, you know, that money isn't the only form of wealth. And I don't want to say that from a privileged place where it's like, you don't need money, like you do. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. um, But also that there's other things that we also value that perhaps we've either been taught not to value or haven't been given the space to value, um, such as, like you said earlier, imagination, creativity, well-being, community, support, all of these things. Um, I know that's not a question. That's more of like a bowl of soup that I just shoved across the table at you. Um, I love this bowl of soup. So I just want to give you the bowl of soup and let you stir it around a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I accept the bowl of soup. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the one of the really um I don't know, nourishing aspects of the research was continuing to ask at different times the community of co-learners, so the community of individuals and enterprises that um had transformed their way of work and that we are following along the journey of over a number of years. continuing to imagine together through kind of like speculative fiction, like what, you know, you wake up, it's 50 years from now and you're in a beloved economy. You walk out your front door. What do you smell, taste, hear? What is it like? And that uh, some of the folks' answers actually became the epilogue of the book. Um, It's a really beautiful, almost poem, you know, found poem. Um, And you know, if you if you look at, I think there could be an amazing kind of wonky, nerdy uh, linguistic analysis of um, the various times that we did some speculative fiction together there. Um, because if you look at the patterns across all the replies, it really is about regenerativity, like you're talking about. It's about, you know... Um, having this kind of cyclical reciprocity um, that nourishes us as we nourish 
um, each other and the land and our systems and uh, not feeling like we're under threat by the very systems that, you know, w- w- <laughs> logically, um, rationally even, should be designed um, for our collective thriving, uh, not just of, not, and not just of the human world either, you know, um, since it's all interconnected. So, um, yeah, that, that, that thread of regeneration and repair and reimagination um, as well as returning to some of the imaginations that prioritize reciprocity is a, is a big part of what came through in the research. Yeah, that makes sense. And then for me anyways, it's really become my meta when I think about what I feel myself most in service to now, whether I do a great job at that or not all the time is to be decided, but that I striving to be in service to life. And I think of life as like mm-hmm. a capital L situation and, mm-hmm. and life is regenerative inherently that we are, that I think humans, at least on this planet, the way that we see life and the template of nature played out for us, you know, it, it, there's a way that we've evolved to be a part of a system like that. And there's something inherently unnatural or, um, to be involved or embedded in something that is so anti-life in many ways. Totally. Yeah. I mean, generally, just as a rule of thumb, if like countless species have been doing things a certain way for like a really long friggin' time um, and it's been working for survival and thrivability, like you don't want to just go take, do the inverse of it and be like, eh, maybe it'll work out, you know, like <laughs> right. <laughs> just, I generally would like to follow the patterns of what makes life thrive. Um, and, and do that in community just as, just as a resiliency strategy, if nothing else. For sure. Yeah. If it's worked for a few million years and it, it probably has some good data behind it. Um, so I think as we begin to soften towards a closing here, I'm wondering if you could speak to any, um, I know there's a lot of co-researchers and collaborators who worked with you on this research and in and with the book. Um, who are some, are there any particular um, heroes who are living this research right now and some of the things that really stand out to you that they're doing really right or really mm. well? Gosh, there's so many. There's 60 and more. <laughs> some of them that come to mind today is, well, Runway, um, W-U-N-W, no, sorry, not W, oh, spelling, R-U-N-W-A-Y, um, uh, the work of that entire team, as well as um, visionary Jessica Norwood, is an amazing example of just completely rethinking how uh, a part of the financial industry works. Um, so. Since probably don't have time to talk a soliloquy about each person and enterprise, I'll, I'll leave it there and hope folks Google if they don't know about their work already. Um, also, Antoinette Carroll and the whole team at Creative Reaction Lab is just doing incredible stuff to um, really transform the way design happens and design thinking. And Antoinette Carroll herself is really at the forefront of um decolonizing design and thinking radically different around design as it meets with and this is my own terminology i think i I would have to double check how um they self-describe on their website but to me it really speaks to liberation um their work is incredibly inspiring um the whole team at concordia community planning 
um, architecture and design is incredible based in New Orleans. Their work around co-creation and shared decision-making um, within the community, uh, I think, I mean, they've been doing it like 30 years too. I mean, the track record of this team and the projects they've led in, you know, really traditional environments too, like with state governments and in some cases with FEMA, like are just, it's just incredible. If anyone needed a case for the fact that sharing decision-making power at scale works, like they are indisputable example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are a few off the top of my head today. Beautiful. Yeah. And I'll be sure to include links so people can learn more about that in the show notes and not have to get lost in Google, but just have a really easy clickable journey into all of that. Even Um, better. (laughs) Yeah. So um, in addition to um, ordering the book, which I think everyone should do. So even if that's not your call to action, it is mine. Everyone should buy the book. Um, (laughs) Is there anything that you would like to... um, a, that you either think I didn't make room for, something that you would like to share that I um, didn't create space for, um, and perhaps a call uh, a call to action or an invitation um, for folks who are listening to this to take a baby step towards um, a more imaginative economy. Oh, wow. Um, I guess just trust yourself to get started. And, you know, we have a <laughs> it's not my like subtle underhanded thing of like buy the book, but but also if you're going to buy the book at the, at the back of the book, we have um, a section about getting started with some next steps to in the appendix. So that's a resource for folks. And I'm sure we're going to have uh, that stuff available online, um, downloadable at some point too. Um, and I guess on a super practical level, if anyone's listening this, this particular fall 2022, we're um, hosting a series of salon conversations across the country. So if you would want to meet up in person or in a virtual room with other people interested in talking about these topics and exploring them and figuring out how to get started, um, maybe how to get started together, uh, you could email us um, at RSVP, or I think actually this one is Yes. <laughs> um, me, Tom at belovedeconomies.org. So that's um, my, my colleague, me, Tom, and her, um, her name is M-Y-T-A-M at belovedeconomies.com. Um, and she's taking volunteer hosts. So if anyone would want to host a salon in their virtual or in-person living room or join up to find a salon near them, that could be a great way to get started too. Speaking now that we're dropping links and handles and all these things that we will also include in the show notes for easy reference. So if you're listening to this, be sure to check out the show notes for all this information in print and clickable links. Um, Where do you like people to find a you on the internet and also more about this work? We'll have a link to order the book as well, but what handles and URLs would you like people to come away with? Oh, thanks. Um, You can learn more about Beloved Economies, the research, the book, the campaign at belovedeconomies.org. And um, all of the different organizations and enterprises are on the website that were part of the co-learning communities. That's a great jumping off point to learn about other folks' work as well. I um, My work can be found at possiblefutures.us. Um, possiblefutures.us. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. Um, and my social handles are on that site. Awesome. Beautiful. Um, Well, thanks for a, thank you for this book, which is such a gift. And I know such a, I guess such a, I don't know what the word to say, such a like birth of research and generative knowledge that I know has been um, 
it's the fruit of a lot of effort and collaboration. And I'm really grateful that it's out in the world and also to have a copy for myself. And <laughs> thank you for coming on today and just giving us more into like the heart of the work and also your heart in the work. And I'm sure the listeners appreciate it. And I'm also very grateful. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Mary Grace, for your time. Um, and thanks for listening, those who are listening at home. Thank you for participating in this conversation with us. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a few moments to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and share the episode. These tiny tasks help our independent podcast so much. Be sure to also check out the links below to learn more about any free resources, guests, or things we talked about today. Our intro and outro music was created by artists Aaron Palovic and Jared Kelly. Our podcast logo was created by Elaine Stevenson, and this show is produced by Softer Sound Studio. Thank you for being here. Be well. Peace.